Welcome to the Control the Room podcast, a series devoted to the exploration of meeting culture and uncovering cures for the common meeting. Some meetings have tight control and others are loose. To control the room means achieving outcomes while striking a balance between imposing and removing structure, asserting and distributing power, leaning in and leaning out, all in the service of having a truly magical meeting. Today, I'm with Vijay Kumar. Vijay is an expert on innovation and professor emeritus at the IIT Institute of Design in Chicago. He is also author of 101 Design Methods, a structured approach for driving innovation in your organization. Welcome to the show, Vijay. Thank you, Douglas. Happy to be with you. So, Vijay, for starters, let's just talk a little bit about how you got your start. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's been a long journey for me. When I was growing up back in India, uh, so the southern part of India, the design, the world of design and innovation was emerging in the in the Western countries and rest of the world. Uh, it was not very popular in the southern part of India where I was growing up, but it, it is starting to emerge. So I got interested in the idea of what, what is this design? What is this innovation? So I wanted to get uh, my education <laughs> in that because my early early on in my life, my interest was, in, was on uh, creative activities. Uh, even when I was school, I was interested in um, visualize drawing and you know, putting ideas into pictures and um, even opening our toys and dismantling everything and studying and putting them back. So, uh, so I got interested in design and at that time there was no school of design in India. So of course it is starting at that time. So I want to be there. So the interesting story about that school is that the government of India, when they wanted to start a design school in India for the first time. And they, they, they wanted to depend on gurus um, who knows about design, right? So the government of India invited Charles and Ray Ames. As you know, you, you've heard of them, right? Charles Ames. Of course. He is a, yeah, he is a very famous pioneering designer from, from USA. Many, many years ago, uh, he he and his wife were practicing innovation in the early stages at that time. So government of India invited them. They traveled all around India uh, talking to people, uh, getting insights about what kind of a design school would be best suited for Indian conditions. And then finally, after several months, they submitted a recommendation in the form of a report and presentation to the government of India. It was based on that the school in India called National Institute of Design was started. So I got interested in it. That's where I wanted to go. So I got in somehow. So those were the early days of my interest starting to develop in the idea of design and innovation. That's amazing. Then, of course, yeah. Then, of course, a lot of (laughs) the rest of the journey is also interesting. Yes, in 19... 1976, when I was in the school, Charles and Reims came back to the school just to see how the school was working. So I had the opportunity to meet them and work with them. So I was amazed by how their minds worked. As you know, Charles Reims is a kind of a phenomenon. He's not an individual. He is a environmental designer, architect, exhibition designer, information visualizer, toy maker, filmmaker, and all kinds of you know, amazing work that he was doing. So I was fascinated by his 
thinking, no, more than the output that he was creating. I was fascinated by how, how does he think about this new stuff? How does he connect dots within his mind about creating this wonderful world in front of him as future? So I was fascinated by that. It was the beginning of my interest in the process of design innovation or the methods and tools and the, the ways in which we all do innovation. Right? So the tools that we use, the frameworks that we use, I was fascinated by that, by that idea of how do we do innovation or innovative work, especially in groups, in, in teams. Innovation is, you know, is most effective when it is done in teams. So it is that that is again the beginning of my interest in the process or the methodologies for thinking about innovation. Uh, so then over the <laughs> over the years, uh, I graduated from there, and then uh, in 1987, um, it, after graduation, I practiced a little bit back in India. I was doing product design. I tried to practice product design for companies at that time, but nobody has heard of. Uh, the idea of product design. So it is a struggle early in those days to practice a new idea for the industry. So while I was doing that in 1987, 88 or 86, that those, those years were a period in which computers were beginning to appear or emerge as a tool for designers like computer-aided design, computer-aided manufacturing, those kinds of ideas started developing. Apple Macintosh was uh, was doing desktop publishing and things like that. So I was fascinated by that world of how, how can computers help the process of design. So I could not get that, that kind of proficiency or competency in the part where I was, uh, the southern part of India where I was, because uh, computers were not very accessible in those early days. So I started looking around the world, where can I get that competency? So I got in touch with them. And of course, uh, out of all the research that I did, where, which, which place or which university or which organization can teach me about um, the use of computers for designing. So I finally found this National Institute of, I mean, Institute of Design Illinois Institute of Technology in Chicago as the place that, that is doing the most cutting-edge work on computer-supported design processes at that time. And there was this Professor Charles Owen. He was leading that effort, and he's a guru. Again, he's a wonderful visionary person who started the idea of discipline innovation processes, including using computers as a structured process. So he, was, he had published a lot of papers. I was reading his papers. I got fascinated with him. So I started communicating with him. In those olden days, <laughs> if you can imagine, there was no email, nothing of that, of that kind. So I, lit, I had a, you know, a Remington typewriter, right? So I used to type my letters on that typewriter and mail it to Professor Charles Owen and wait for our almost three, three or four weeks before I get his response. That is the kind of slow communication that is happening, and look at the world where we are in today. But uh, he was he was a wonderful person. He I established a rapport with him, and finally invited me to come to Chicago, where he can mentor me or advise me to the area of computer-supported structured planning techniques. 
So that's how I ended up in Chicago. And then again, another world of opportunities arose there. So I started working under Professor Charles Owens um, and, uh, and his mentorship. That's when I started exploring the idea of making the design process much more structured and much more organized and disciplined. That is the beginning again of my, my focus for the rest of my career. So after graduating from there in 1990, I started practicing as a consultant based in Chicago, working mainly with design, pioneering design strategy consulting firm called Doblin at that time. Have you heard of Doblin? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah of course. Yeah. It is a pioneering design firm, I mean, design strategy planning firm, which was doing wonderful work. We had a group of people from various disciplines. Uh, from business, from engineering, from technology, from anthropology, social science, and English literature, and mathematics, and things like that. We were all, that is a wonderful, you know, sort of a, a radical thinking that I, you know, I had, had experience where uh, the design, the idea of design till then was craft-oriented or intuition-oriented. I come out with an idea, I quickly turn that idea into a product or a service or anything. But the idea of creating a disciplined process beyond intuitive intuitive technique, make it structured and disciplined. There are, there are disciplined ways of doing research and ideation and prototyping and all kinds of things that are associated with design activities was emerging at that time. And we were practicing that in those early days, 19, early 1990s. So that is another amazing trans, uh, transformative experience that I've had in which I literally saw the field of design shifting from an intuitive field to a more structured, disciplined field. So I was fascinated by that because that is my interest about making the process structured and disciplined. I got to work with this wonderful group of people at Doblin, and then we did a very interesting transformative work for a lot of clients, a number of clients, many major companies, especially using the human-centered aspect of business planning. So that is, that is another focus that sort of transformed the idea of innovation during those days. So 12 years I worked at uh, Doblin as a consultant. That is a wonderful uh, time for me because I could experiment or I could develop new methods and tools and frameworks in the context of actual real-world projects working with these client organizations. So over the years, uh, um, after 12 years, I decided oh, I had enough of experience developing <laughs> these tools and techniques in the context of client projects. So I wanted to expand and broaden my contributions or share my ideas much more widely. So I joined this Institute of Design as a faculty member in Chicago where I could teach and develop courses and at the same time conduct workshops for organizations and even do consulting with organizations. So that was the period in 2002 onwards I was doing that. That is a period in which I could write, I could learn more about client challenges. I could publish my materials and I could share them much widely. Uh, students, company innovators in organizations, leaders, managers, and all kinds of people. So that's what I'm really enjoying these days. 
Excellent. And, and you published a book to, that basically pulls together a lot of these concepts around discipline processes and methods for, for accomplishing these goals. Yes, I did. 2012, I suppose. I published a book called 101 Design Methods. That is a compilation of many of the methods that I've developed over the years till then in the context of client projects as well as teaching uh, in the university. So that uh, seems to be, seems to be uh, quite useful for a lot of people as a reference book for applying design methods in a much more structured way. And there, there's quite a, a lot in there. You know, I think even you know, as the title alludes, it's 101 design methods. A, you know, a structured approach for driving innovation in your organization. Right. How do you recommend? Do you have advice on how folks start? Like how 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 do they, how do they um, dig into all a hundred of these things? Yes, uh, very interesting. The way I have found out, uh, the way I've experienced people using the book, so many different ways, so many diverse ways. For example, people use the book to learn about the techniques and the methods. So it, it can be used as a reference, right? You, you turn on any page and there's a method that you can learn about it and, and all these 101 methods are organized under a common framework. So that shows where you are when you are using a particular method, which stage of the process you are. That's from the learning point of view. But I've seen a lot of people, professors and teachers and workshop facilitators and workshop organizers using the book as a way to create curriculum, uh, you know, their own curriculum be based on uh, some of the techniques in the book. So so they use it in a different way. So they use it in, in, a, in a manner in which they, they go through the methods and then select the most appropriate method that fits in with their goals for creating a curriculum or a workshop or a teaching module and then maybe build on it, modify it, and then compile it for their purpose. Um, that's I've seen. That's what I've seen. But another very practical way of using the book is for applying it to projects. So project teams in organizations or in classrooms use the book to do their project. So when they're doing the project, they have certain constraints. Uh, the project is, let's say, three, three months in duration. And then we have a team of these many people. And we have some limitations or constraints for doing research or whatever constraints and opportunity the project team has for doing the work. Based on that, they select the most appropriate methods from the book and then apply it, actually apply it on their project. That's another way in which I've seen people use the book. But nonetheless, your question about the, you know, the, it, is, it is complex, 101 methods, right? So <laughs> there's a lot more that can be added to it. So some, you know, you can get carried away by the immensity of the things that you can do as process. But I always tell people, don't get intimidated by the volume or the mere size of, or the mere number of methods that are out there. But the idea is to be aware of many of them or most of them so that you can tap into, you know, think of a toolkit. You have, you have a large toolkit, right? When you're doing a project with a toolkit, you use only a few tools to do a project. So similarly, you don't have to, use all these 101 methods in a one project that you're doing, you choose the best best methods that are most appropriate for your project. What would you say is the most ubiquitous, like maybe the one method or tool that you think 
just gets used the most and you know maybe it's the most appreciated the most most approachable for beginners so for beginners i wouldn't be able to sort of talk about just one method but uh maybe for beginners to go through the whole process of innovation, at least let's say mm. in, in a simplified way, you have to do research and you have to look at the research findings and fi find out some patterns and turn them into some kind of insights and turn those insights into some ideas that you want to implement. And then you move into some prototyping or implementation of ideas. So beginners are also challenged with that situation that they're facing. So they may have to look at the most accessible methods in each of those stages. Or in the book I call modes, in the research mode, when you are in the research mode, the beginners can pick on the most interesting, most valuable research method. For example, it, it might be about um, observational research, right? It's all about understanding people, right? That's the key of design innovation. So that's the most significant part of research. So pick on that tool of how do I do observational research? How do I observe people and understand their behaviors and activities? That's one tool that I can pick from the research mode. Mm -hmm. But when you get into the, let's say, ideation mode, right? When you're creating ideas, even as a beginner, you can pick on the, probably the most interesting method for creating ideas, let's say idea generation or brainstorming, maybe one key method that you can pull out from the collection. And what would you say would be one step or method or something that people tend to misuse or tend to a challenge that's very common that you're seeing a lot when you're doing your consulting or just hearing from readers? Um, yes, that's a great question. What I find most challenging for people are at the stage when, when they move from research into ideation. That is especially in my book, I call it the framing insights mode. And the, the mode of framing insights is probably the most challenging because the most intuitive or natural way for people to work on innovation projects is, of course, I've done research. The research is telling me to do this as an idea, as an opportunity, or a product, or a service. So they quickly move into the ideal product or a service, a solution, very fast, mm. based on their research understanding. But I think the value, we can add a lot of value there by making it much more structured and disciplined, right? So how do I deal with the research data that I've collected? You have collected massive amount of data from the field taken, the interviews that I've done, the other kinds of contextual research that I've done. You are in front of a massive amount of information. So how do I make sense of all this? You cannot jump into solutions quickly from there. So seeing patterns in the data that's where framing insights matter. In this massive amount of data that I've collected, what can, what can what are the insights, key insights that come out? What are the patterns that I can see that points to an opportunity for the future? Um, what are the patterns or problems that people are facing that tells me that there is a need that is to be solved? So all those questions about pattern finding and then framing your insights or design research data into usable forms that can drive your ideas for the future is critical, but that's where uh, I've seen a lot of teams and organizations are struggling with. You know, I see that as well. And, you know, it's, it's mm -hmm. fascinating because I feel like there are folks that are experienced in it 
artists that are naturally gifted at it. And I think where a lot of folks struggle is like, what are some tactics that are some mm-hmm. really concrete ways that I can slow down and frame it properly? I'm, I'm wondering right. if you have any reframing or any interesting tips on things that a checklist or things people can do to, to make sure they're not just jumping past through that step. Yeah, they can do so many things. One key idea that that they can apply is that from all the research that I've done, all the understanding my team and myself and everyone together has done, you can pass all that data through some a few finite number of key principles. One principle might be out of all these insights, what are the insights that will add a great experience to people, the human-centered filter, right? So run all your data through that human-centered filter so that any solution that you think about will be will be based on a human need, right? That's, that's one thing that you can do. The other thing is, other uh, mechanism that people can use is creating systems maps mm. of all the data that you have, all the insights that you have generated. Create systems map, starting with the mind map, right? Mind map is a is sort of externalization of all the thoughts in your mind. So, but make it might slightly more refined because you have done research, you have a lot of understanding about the context. Now, how can we, how can I create a systems map? What I mean by that is that even if you're working on a, let's say, a design of a simple product like a mobile phone, even if you're working on that simple product, you should not be caught up in looking at the product only, the materials, manufacturing, and functions, and features, and things like that. You should not get caught up in that narrow focus on your target. You should take a step back and look at what is that product in relation to? Where does it exist in a system? Then you can start mapping the system, right? The, the mobile phone is related to carriers and um, you know technology uh, wireless technology or communication technologies and there are mobile phone manufacturers there are of course users and uh, groups of users and then all kinds of then of course uh, governments and regulations and uh, the culture and the context of around around in which the the mobile phone exists so that way you can if you can create a systems model, that's a great way to sort of get an overview of the research data that you have in front. Now, once you have a system model, then it's very really easy to think about solutions as various parts of that model. So that's the second one. Of course, there are a few more uh, filters like that that people can use. I've just given two examples. Yeah, and so to help the listeners with a systems model, you know, to someone who's never heard of this before, it might sound mm-hmm. kind of complex or complicated or, or foreign. What can you break down exactly what a systems model is and how they might make one? Yes, the basic components of understanding a system is that any system has entities. Let us say a classroom. You know, a classroom where the teacher is, or, or a workshop situation where the facilitator is teaching certain certain methods. And so let's look at that situation. So it is composed of entities. Entities are there are tangible elements that are part of the system. So you have to write, you have to sort of identify which are the key entities that make up the classroom or the workshop situation. So there is a facilitator is one entity. There are learners is another entity. There are tools and methods that are being used in that 
classroom. There's the third entity, right? So, or if there there are some you know, projects that are done in the in the classroom, the projects are another entity. So, identifying the entities or the most significant tangible parts of whatever you're trying to solve for is the first step. Now, once you identify the key entities, then you have to think about the relations between them. So a system model is always about relationships between entities. So what is the relationship between the facilitator and the learner? So you have to define the relation. You have to understand the relationship. That's another way to sort of make the systems model. So you have entities, relations. The third part of the system are called attributes. Attributes are measurable values that the entities have, right? So, for example, the students. What are the attributes of the student? What are their backgrounds? What is their you know, level of education? What, is the, what are the previous achievements that they have? What is their intelligence or creativity level? So they're all attributes. So you have to understand the key attributes of these entities and map them on the systems map. And then, of course, you have to look at any system as not static. The systems are always dynamics. Dynamic, it is changing all the time, right? The relationship between the entities at uh, one instance might change to a different relationship later on um, in another instance. So over time, what are the changes that are happening in the system? to the entities, to the relationship, and things like that needs to be considered. So, so I just brought out four fundamental aspects of thinking about system. Think about all the significant entities, think about relations between them, think about the attributes that make up the entities and the relationships, and think about the dynamics or the temporal aspects of the system. So that's a good start. Yeah, I think the temporal aspects are something that people often forget. You know, yeah, they they measure things and expect them to stay this be that way at all times, and it's kind of the observer phenomenon. <laughs> right, right, yeah, you are absolutely right. When people think about the systems as static, and then you know you have to be prepared <laughs> for changes mm. in the context that you are working with. So, being aware of that is a key part. So I want to talk a little bit about how we do this work in groups, because, you know, certainly if we're wanting to consider some, you know, the design of some new thing, some new solution, some concept, these principles matter, right? As you mentioned, we want to move from intuition to more disciplined process. And I think... We also have to keep in mind that we need to do this work in teams and groups. It's not absolutely this isn't a craft project that we yeah. do at home by ourselves. And so I'm curious, what are some things that you, as you're teaching students or, or coaching clients, what are some things that you you do to help ensure they're collaborating and working together as effectively as possible? Right. Yeah, that's where the idea of modes of the process is very key especially when you're working in teams. Let's say we are in the beginning stages of a project and I have this team working with me and I'm also part of the team. And then, of course, at the beginning, we are in the mode of research, let's say. Research is trying to understand the context and the people in the context. So if you are in in that mode, you have to be cognizant, the entire team have to be cognizant about that mode. So that's where the mindsets 
matter a lot. So in teamwork, we have to establish a mindset. Mindset is a way to think while you're working in teams. So in the research mode, we all have to be aligned on having a mindset of we are in the mode of understanding things. We are not in the mode of developing solutions at that time, right? That will come later on. But in the mode of understanding things or the research, we should keep our minds sort of open to be fully focused on understanding things, right? That's where when we do interviews, the team has to have a common alignment about during interviews, we are trying to understand people and what they tell us. We are not going to teach them anything. We are not going to suggest anything to them. Like you have to block out all the other extra things that you might intuitively do in an interview. So suggesting solutions and recommending things in an interview, you have to block out those ideas and just ask questions to understand the, the, the people during the interview. So having the the most successful meetings I've seen is when the whole team is fully aware of the mindset the team needs to be in so that they, you don't go into tangents because focus really matters in, in a work like this. You have to fully focus on the kind of mode that you're in. And on contrast, if you are in the mode of idea generation, <laughs> you, you have to put on a different mindset. The entire team has to put on the mindset of Oh, this is about thinking about the future. It's about ideating, come on, coming out with ideas and fantasizing and telling stories about the future, scenarios of the future. So you have to be in that mindset. It's not about understanding or doing research. This is all about creating the future. So that's one aspect, the modes and the mindsets. Having a clear, aligned picture adds a lot of value to teamwork. The second part that, that comes to my mind is the teams ought to be people from various disciplines in organization. For example, when you're doing research, the team, I mean, the natural tendency for us is to create a team who are good in research, right? Uh, researchers or social scientists or, you know, interviewers. That's, that's, the, that's the first intuitive step that you'll take, but you have to go beyond that. Um, you have to involve other people who may not be fully fully aware of the research methods. Uh, for example, you may have to pull in a designer, a creative person into the team so that there's a, there's a conversation while you're doing research, and not just about understanding people, but what and how can that possibly manifest in, a, in an idea uh, through creative thinking, right? That those, those discussions matter a lot when you have multiple points of views that happen in a meeting. So probably you may have to bring in, let's say, a business expert uh, into the research team, at least not for the entire time, but at least when you're having discussions or team meetings and having those kinds of points of views, multiple points of views is so important. Yeah, that's uh, those are some good points. I want to come back to the mindset piece because it reminds me a bit about you know setting expectations and making sure that everyone is clear on what's expected of them, what they're going to do, and how we how we want everyone to show up. And right. if we don't communicate the mindset we expect right. everyone to operate in, then they're not going to be aligned there. Right, exactly. So that's where we spend a lot of time. In our team, we spend a lot of time initially establishing that mindset or looking at, mm. looking at situations, a context, or other projects in which 
you know, that particular mode is done and what, what have people done there. And having a lot of discussions about around that mindset is a good way to have that alignment around all the team members. You know, it reminds me, I had an interview a few weeks ago with Jan de Vich, uh-huh. and he's done a bunch of research around what he calls thinking structures, which is very similar to the way you were talking about mindsets. Right. And whereas I think when you're talking about mindsets, it seems like what is the view of how we how we approach the work? Right. Whereas like his, uh, I think a cousin to what you're talking about, his thought patterns is like, how are we systematically looking at the world from a, like, am I looking at hierarchies or am I looking at like relationships or am I looking at, so it's like, it's kind of interesting. I think you combine these two things together and you can have some really powerful um, outcomes. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yes. That, that uh, brings another, so the mindsets and methods and modes are important, but based on your observation, there is a, this other area that requires a lot of attention is what I call thought frameworks, mm. mental models that all of us need to have about context. So the, the hierarchy, is it, does it need to be a hierarchical model or a flat model and things like that? Or when we, when we think about, uh, let us say, talking about trends when we do research, how do we wrap our, wrap our minds about about the idea of trends. How can we create a mental model that that is almost like a point of view that can drive my team's work and everyone can align on that mental model. So slightly different from the mindset, it's a mental model that, 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 that works in complement with the mindsets and the practice, which are, which are the methods. Yeah, I, I ran across some academic papers on I believe it was, it was at 75 or 77 design heuristics. Uh-huh. And there, there are these ways to kind of reimagine something that you're concepting or considering. Right. And I, I just thought they were a really great way to like change your mental model. Right. Yeah. I'm, yes. I'm looking at this from a certain way. And then this prompt just sends me, <laughs> just yeah. might flip me 30 degrees and I'm like, Oh wow. Yeah. What if I did incorporate right. motion? What does right. that mean to incorporate motion in this thing? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a great uh, way of looking at it. So these mental models, once they are created, that, that's a mental model that you have created to understand. Let's say this is the mental model in which the current system works. Once you understand that mental model, you can change it, right? Reframe it. Reframe it pretty easily, right? With with more competence. So that reframing mental models can lead you to great innovative thinking. Yeah, I think Scamper is a real simple version of that. You know, it's just a five-step version of kind of like, let's like reframe it from different angles and right. just different prompts. You know, are we going to substitute something? Are we going to combine things? Are we going to, you know, just kind of forcing people to to step out of this? It's, it's really easy to get in tunnel vision. It's like, right. what is that? I think some of the best advice I was given as a young engineer was like, you know, always throw away the first good solution, throw away. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, that that's key. I think yeah. I've I've found out that in many of the brainstorming sessions that we have, right? We create a whole lot of ideas. Initially, a lot of ideas come up, but some ideas that come much later, based on the the idea chaining that goes on, happens to be much more valuable, right? So that went through a lot of iterations of reframing. That's where that becomes much more valuable. And so, you know, there's been a lot of changes over the last year. And especially, I'm really intrigued to hear, you know, given your background and having seen these various kind of 
S curves, if you will, you know, you, you experience various transformations and I, I almost feel like we're on the precipice, you know, right. of, of some of this, when you look at like Autodesk, you know, creating tools, what they call the generative design, you know, where the right. computers are creating like a thousand different things and the designers just looking at them, thinking right. and inspired by what the computer suggested, right. AI, you know, all of this work from home and remote collaboration tools. So I'm just curious, like someone like yourself who has clearly been there through a lot of transitions, a critical thinker, working with a lot of students, which is like, has to be inspiring. Right. What kind of hunch do you have right now that you're kind of poking at and you think might, it might bear fruit or might turn into something? Maybe it's just a notion or just a spark. What, what, what's on your mind? Yeah, a lot of ideas, a lot of thinking that can lead to some good insights. But some of the key things that come to my mind is that, uh, you know, if you look at the evolution of design or innovation, new things that you can do, um, as we already mentioned early part was just craft, right? You have an idea, thought, you immediately implement it as a craft solution. Then it went through intuitive, you know, sort of designers doing the craft, but still doing it in an intuitive way. Then it became much more, uh, we can't do, we need to you know, add some meaning to um, how we do our innovative work. So bring in the, the user understanding, the humanness of it. So we went into that state for some time, the human-centered design, but it is all being done by design team or designers. But um, it transformed into, oh, that's, that's not good enough to succeed. You have to bring in other kinds of thinking like the business planning and technology thinking and so we have to make it multidisciplinary. So we went into teams and larger you know, organizational um, entities doing the design work. And then, of course, lots of uh, methods and tools. There's an era of methods and tools and you know frameworks that will help these multidisciplinary teams do the work. And now we are moving into moving into much more intelligent ways of doing design using AI and uh, big data and the patterns that occur and, and that'll suggest new insights which could be we could not be doing uh, before, right? That's the stage in which. So if you um, if you extrapolate that trajectory, <laughs> um, what what tells me is that innovations will happen much more in a in a ubiquitous way, whether it is embedded in data or whether in embedded in people doing work for anywhere or teams that are constantly changing in dynamic teams or social network, you know, teams determined by social networking that is dynamically changing all the time. So innovative work will happen in that kind of way, much more ubiquitous, much more open. Anyone can participate in the innovation. I don't think that designers and design teams are not the only ones doing creative work. It'll, it'll be done by everyone, right? Everyone might participate in that open uh, context. So there's one direction that I think the world is moving. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. So I guess I'm curious, you know, with things becoming more ubiquitous, how do you think that will impact teams and how they work together and approach these things? Yeah, I think it'll impact teams. First of all, teams will become themselves like a transient right nowadays you know you have one team which is kind of stable you know, throughout the project but that mental model may have to be reframed what i mean by transient is the team composition is changing all the time right if you think about that 
situation, that scenario, in which team is completely transient, that uh, people come in and go out um, as needed. So that that will be a challenge the team will have to face. Mm-hmm. That's a, probably a key challenge that they have to face. Excellent. Well, um, Vijay, it's been a pleasure chatting with you today. And I just want to give you an opportunity to leave our listeners with a final thought or maybe how they could find your work or find the book. Like, What should they know? Yes. So a couple of things. One is uh, the teams should really appreciate the idea of empathy, right? That teams should really appreciate. Each team, team member should really appreciate the fact that um, um, there are multiple viewpoints um, coming from various disciplines and various expertise, uh, experts and various ways of thinking. So you have to really open up you, you might be really fully focused on a point of view that you want to sort of encourage in a team, but at the same time, you have to equally well appreciate other points of view. Sometimes it is counterintuitive to human nature, right? So that's one area in which I have found a lot of, uh, um, lot of challenges, especially in classrooms and other, other areas. So one thing to keep in mind is that, okay, I've got a strong point of view, but everyone else also has strong points of views. So how do I how do I be respectful and uh, how do I align? You can disagree with um, another idea or uh, another controversial thing that doesn't fit with your mental model. But if the entire team wants to move in a particular direction, you have to align. Like uh, disagreement is okay, but alignment is key. That's where empathy comes. You have to align with other people's way of thinking, even if you don't agree with the direction in which that is moving. It's been a pleasure, Vijay. Thanks for joining. Okay, thank you. It is a wonderful conversation. I really enjoyed. Thank you. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Control the Room. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are released. And if you want more, head over to our blog where I post weekly articles and resources about working better together. VoltageControl.com.